This is Jeff Steitzer, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Double kill, triple kill, overkill, kill tacular, kill apocalypse, slayer, mmm, brains. <laughs> Welcome one, welcome all to episode 132 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, Ed Freeze, former vice president of game publishing at Xbox, joins the show to discuss his career, Xbox in Japan, and just what he thinks of Xbox leadership's current decisions. Prior to that, we'll note the progress that Xbox has made in the Japanese market and clear up misconceptions about what excitement for a brand in gaming can truly mean. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness are extended to Mr. Ainsley Bowden. He's the editor-in-chief of Season Gaming, my co-host on Cast Co-op, and he's bald. But more importantly, he's a friend. He's provided some incredible advice in this past few weeks and wonderful counsel as I've been uh, working my way through a couple different gaming and life decisions. It's been super cool to be able to rely on him. And despite battling COVID and dealing with his own family struggles, he continues to work to make the Xbox gaming community and the gaming community overall better. Uh, You have to think there's a lot of courage in a man who has a face for radio and still puts content out on YouTube. Uh, Just genuinely a courageous story. So shout out to Ainsley Bowden, Porsche Power over on Twitter, editor-in-chief of Season Gaming. Uh, I appreciate you, man. I thank you for everything you've done for me of late and for uh, putting your heart out there for, for gamers to hear your story. So brave. So brave to be to have that face and, and get up every morning. So cheers to you, sir. Let's go through some housekeeping here. I want to thank you to everybody. Send a thank you to everyone that checked out last week's episode and the interview with Halo legendary voice actor Jeff Steitzer. That was an absolute blast. I grinned ear to ear as Jeff and I talked, and I got to find out that many of you did as well, which was really cool. Uh, I was surprised at some of the things he shared with us. It was really wild to think that 343 tried to fire uh, he and many other of the voice acting team uh, when they took over from Bungie. It's such a far cry from where they are now, but to find out that 343 tried to fire them is is, is wild. Uh Pretty cool tidbits, I thought, in there. Um, I do hope that he gets his his hopeful cameo in the Halo show for season two because I think we'd all be really cool if we got to hear, you know, Jeff's voice in in the Halo show. I think we'd all kind of grin and be excited for that one. But it was a feel good, fun interview, and it was really, really neat to just sit down and talk to this guy who's been part of Halo since the very beginning and thus part of Xbox since the very beginning. I absolutely loved that one and i appreciate all of you guys who who checked it out uh if you haven't yet please go back and listen to it it's just it's just a feel-good fun interview he's just such a good dude and you know one of the 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 
it started to sound morbid, but then it, it was really my heart came around to it is the idea that once he passes on, he's okay with his voice lines being used in future Halo titles. And and I really hope that comes to pass because I I want to hear him in the future, not him passing away. <laughs> I hope to hear him in Halo's forever time, somehow, some way, an honor and tribute to him. Because uh, like how many memories do we have in the Halo universe of of his voice saying double kill or kill you or, or slayer and all that stuff. It's just, it was cool. And so I hope you guys enjoyed that one later in this episode. Of course we have uh, Ed freeze who helped launch the original Xbox helped launch the Xbox 360. And uh, it was, it, it's such a departure from hearing Jeff's voice. Who's this super jovial uh, charismatic person. And Ed in his own way is the same, but it's a much calmer intelligence. Every question was, uh, considered nothing off the cuff. Uh, really, really cool to hear some of the stuff that Ed talks about later on in the show, and including you know why Xbox continues to fail in Japan, which is interesting. And when you look at it, it paired with some of this week's news, of course. Uh, and let's 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 go ahead and get to that. Um, Xbox in Japan this week, the Xbox Series console surpassed that of PlayStation Five for the first time. Uh, since 2014, but it, that is to say that an Xbox console outsold a PlayStation console for the first time since 2014. This was reported by Famitsu that during the week of May 9th through May 15th, the series consoles outsold the PlayStation disc and digital versions uh, by a pretty significant amount. Uh, pretty darn cool to see, all things considered. The Xbox combined for about 6,100 units and the PlayStations combined for close to 2,700 units. Uh, pretty big disparity uh, in some ways and in others, not as much. It's the, the first time we've seen this happen in a very long time for Xbox to continue to gain ground. Of course, they've done a phenomenal job during the Xbox Series console era of gaining ground in Japan. But when we say gaining ground, there's a couple things we have to acknowledge. Without a doubt and with no speculation, you can acknowledge the chip shortage as being the reason for this surpassing. We've seen... Uh, chip shortages hit the entire electronics industry, not just gaming, but PlayStation seems to be struggling with that far more than Microsoft, likely due to moves that were made years ago at this point. But because of availability, Xbox is now outselling PlayStation. And when you pair this with the news we got a week ago where Xbox had its best quarter uh, and outsold both Nintendo and PlayStation overall, uh, in the first time since the Xbox 360 era, that's pretty stunning as well. And it looks like the moves that, that Xbox is making in the physical aspect of, of gaining materials and resources for managing this chip shortage pre and post COVID uh, are really starting to pay off. And when you couple that with a lot of their decisions on the software and networking side, uh, you've got a recipe for Microsoft to really gain some headway and mindshare in Asian markets, specifically Japan. Now, when we say gaining ground and when we acknowledge that they're outselling in Japan, we have to remember the disparity between the two consoles. PlayStation is by far beyond successful in Japan and far more so than like even even we would really comprehend here. Xbox has historically struggled all the way back to the original Xbox. And even in the Xbox 360, where they made a lot of correct moves, uh, it just didn't land. It's an American company. They have a very different way of business, doing business, I should say. Uh, than than Japanese companies do. And again, I'm, I'm going to point you a little bit ahead to uh, the Ed Freeze interview where he talks about just why that is and uh, why he's come around to the Japanese way of thinking on this one versus the American one, which I, thought, I found fascinating. 
Um, but it's it's cool to see, nonetheless, Xbox making headway there uh, in a market where they've historically struggled. You have to think that xCloud and Game Pass are the two kind of driving forces after the chip shortage. And the benefit here is that the barrier to entry in terms of dollar amounts for the Xbox ecosystem is cheaper than that of PlayStation. PlayStations are more expensive than the Xbox Series S. And buying PlayStation games in most places around the world are more expensive than than Xbox games. Not by much, but by a little bit. When you look at the subscription services offered and the, the variety that is offered, Game Pass is a more attractive option in most ways. Now, we must acknowledge that uh, PlayStation has done a great job with adding value to its PlayStation Plus service. Uh, I'll admit, and I think I talked about in previous episodes, that new PlayStation Plus branding and the tier system is confusing. It's muddled, and I don't like the way it's set up. But it's adding a lot more value than they've ever had in that service before. They are apples and oranges comparisons. But when you talk about dollar amounts and being interested in value and, and where you want to put your money, PlayStation Plus has always been attractive, and it's now even more so. Uh, so excitement on that front, but I like that Game Pass is is continuing to make itself presentable to those outside of its market. The barrier to entry, as I said, for Xbox is cheaper than that of PlayStation. So when you combine that, the ability to to jump into the Xbox ecosystem at about a hundred bucks cheaper on average, plus the chip shortages, plus the ability to log in through cloud anywhere you go on a mobile device, that's a pretty enticing offer to say, hey, come check out this catalog of games. It's different than the one you've had. Uh, what do you got? That's a pretty neat thing. I, I think there's a lot to, to say about Microsoft's strategy there. But we, of course, again, go back to the idea that while they won the last quarter in, in unit sales and while they won uh, Japan last week, a lot, of, a lot of this has to do with chip shortages. Again, if I'm at Xbox, I don't care. This is an opportunity to bring people into my ecosystem, to have them building gamer score, to have them checking out my catalog, uh, and seeing what we have on offer. Um, and I hope they continue to take advantage of it because I want Microsoft to continue to be competitive to PlayStation worldwide, especially in Japan, because that will force all of the competitors in that space to build and make the best stuff. This is a benefit for gamers to see Xbox being successful in a new market. Uh, I say new market, but I hope you know what I mean there uh, for sure. I'm excited by the news, but I'm also trying to keep a realistic idea in check. Chip shortages are a big difference there. When you look at the world of, of acquisitions, though, and when you look at what Activision's got on offer as Microsoft continues to, to work on bringing them into the fold, which you would have to expect comes in about a, roughly a year from now. We believe May, uh, May to June of 2023 is when that deal gets finalized. It continues to surpass scrutiny, at least thus far, uh, in the legal spaces worldwide. Uh, they're bringing with them a lot of games. They're bringing with them a lot of catalog, and that catalog is going to be added to Game Pass. Some would speculate it's going to be in this fall where we see the Activision stuff start dropping into Game Pass, and that would make sense if Microsoft pays Activision for the benefit of that catalog uh, to kind of fill a space where they don't have any real exclusives coming. I mean, there's the rumored Phoenix collection of Gears of War stuff, which uh, we know what, well, I've heard one of them is ready, but like, who knows at this point? Like, if they're able to get something out this year, maybe having a, ca a catalog boost by way of Activision would be a good thing as a selling point. But there's a, there's a couple games in development on the Activision side that look enticing. Uh, if, if you're Microsoft, you've got Modern Warfare 2 and Warzone 2, which 
I can't help but laugh when I hear Warzone 2. It just sounds funny. But they've got Diablo 4 and Diablo Immortal, two games that are going to do extremely well in terms of, of number and mind share. I mean, Diablo Immortal is going to crush it. I know there's the meme of you guys not have phones and that really bad reveal. And that was a bad reveal, not to mention a, a douchey comment from a community member at the time that can really put them on spotlight. But it was a bad look to talk about a mobile game in the absence of Diablo 4. That That didn't work well for sure. But those two games are going to be gangbusters. And if Diablo 4 is this year, the idea of it going into Game Pass would be a pretty big win for Microsoft, I think, if you could get it. But I don't know that it, that you would be able to. Uh, I'll, I'll credit Miles Dompierre with putting that idea into my mind on, in his Xbox Chatter Days conversation with Khalif Adams. I really um, I hadn't considered that. It's a good idea. But to, again, to go back to what Activision has kind of in development, you've got the Modern Warfare 2, Warzone 2, Overwatch 2, an unnamed Blizzard survival game, which take that however weight you want it. They've got the ongoing World of Warcraft stuff, mobile. They've got the classic stuff that's ongoing. I think they're working on Lich King for that one and a new expansion called Dragonflight. And how many more things do they have that we don't know about? Those are kind of the big ones that stood out in my mind. Um, if they're able to bring that into their catalog, it might be a good stopgap while they wait for other stuff to drop this year. But I just don't, I don't see Microsoft having much in the way of of a new catalog boost this year at this Bethesda showcase, but maybe I'm wrong. I think a lot of people continue to write in asking about that. Uh, and it's interesting to say the least. It is an interesting concept. Um, and then, you know, while we think about Microsoft's success in Japan and in new markets and, and unit sales continuing to boost, despite not having exclusives, when you think about the chip shortage, you really paint a unique picture that I don't think we've seen before. And Activision is going to play a big part in that when it when that deal does go through, if, if it does go through. But it brought me to a question that Edward Varnell wrote, and I'm going to take issue with it a little bit, Edward. But uh, hear me out, I guess you would say. Know that it doesn't come from vitriol. And and listeners, track me on this. Make sure my my logic adds up. Hold me accountable on this one. Uh, again, tweet me at insipidghost or email insipidghost at gmail.com. Let's, let's really talk this one through. Edward's question says, do you think Microsoft is holding off any acquisition to focus on producing games for their platform? Do you think they're ready to show actual games or are they concerned that the community has given up hope or excitement for their titles? End quote. So it, it's a layered question here. The idea that Microsoft will be holding off an acquisition of any kind, think like Ubisoft or, or smaller Crystal Dynamics, whatever it is, uh, to focus on producing games for their platform. And are they actually ready to show games or are they concerned with community that has given up hope for their stuff. So I think from the outside looking in, Edward, it's a really good question to ask. But in reality, we're talking about two different branches of Microsoft here, and they likely don't intersect in a public-facing way. Games that are being produced uh, right now are, are now seeing the full effect of what COVID has done in a work-from-home idea. They were A lot of studios were able to kind of push through and get things out the door, even with minor delays, because of the progress that had been made there. But it looks like what's happening now is that the interruption to being able to go into a studio and work and then the, the work from home aspects have now taken an effect on the gaming community where major AAA titles are being delayed all around all around the, the gaming industry. And you can look at Starfield and Redfall. You can look at Breath of the Wild 2. You can look at Suicide Squad. The scope at which AAA games are, are aiming to deliver does not couple well with being interrupted two years ago in, in, in kind of an ongoing way. The ability to react to those early development games versus kind of the mid to late development of a game uh, has really caused a problem. And statements like 
the community has given up hope for and, and excitement for their titles, I think are divisive and wholly inaccurate. Uh, first, we often see this kind of rhetoric among like YouTube and podcast pundits. Uh, but in reality, and simply put, no community is united under how they feel about a particular platform. And secondly, the suggestion that one of the platform holders is failing uh, more or less than another, I think is pretty silly. When you look at Sony, last year they had uh, in the PS5 exclusive space Returnal and Ratchet and & Clank. And while both great games, they're not going to chart into the tens of millions. But when you look at their cross-gen initiatives, Miles Morales sold in the tens of millions. And you look at Microsoft's side of that, Halo Infinite's a cross-gen title, uh, as is Forza. Those are in the tens of millions. But in the exclusive space, uh, we're just not there yet to really say that the community is united in feeling like let down or, or uh, put out by a platform. And you also have to consider on the Microsoft side, given that we're a Microsoft-focused show, less than six months ago, Microsoft shipped their second of two exclusives in the last nine months with Halo Infinite and Forza. That was as recent as less than six months ago. And we tend to think of these things as like 2022 and 2023, et cetera, like in calendar years. That's not really how it works. In the last seven months, we've had two AAA exclusives from Xbox. That When you think about it that way, it's a little bit different. It skews a little bit differently in our minds. Uh, when you look at, at the Sony side, kind of their major competitor and pillar franchise, Hey, uh, Halo Infinite and Forza didn't have any competition in the fall from Sony. Sony's games slipped into 2023 and allowed for the beginning of this year to be pretty darn strong with Gran Turismo and Horizon. Those two games are what we're thinking of as major exclusives for PlayStation, and they're more recent, but they're in this calendar 2022 year. Uh, pretty pretty wild to think about. I might have misspoken said 2022, 2023 a moment ago. I meant 21 and 22. Uh, but when you look at it in terms of how many months ago you got a AAA exclusive, they're not that far apart in terms of big stuff. Now, it does seem that 2022 is going to be a pretty lacking year for first-party releases on the Microsoft side. And for Sony, front-loaded year with these two big titles in Gran Turismo Horizon. But we don't really have a lot of confidence that God of War is going to come later on this year. If they do, and their Twitter handle continues to state 2022, if they do, it'd be such a baller move and so mean if they launched on November 11th. I saw somebody tweet that one out. I think it was Neo GameSpark. Can you imagine the, the hoopla uh, of people if God of War comes out on Starfield's original release date? I would get a kick out of that one. Nonetheless, uh, we're seeing a lot of titles AAA in, in the AAA space slip due to COVID and the production needs of AAA caliber titles. Uh, and Nintendo, for their part, they've not really managed to deliver on the promises of games like Metroid Prime 4 or Breath of the Wild 2 or even a decent online service. And so when you look at each of the big three pillar titles and you suggest that a community is wholly unhappy, I think it's divisive. When you when you take a step back, all three of the big big three are doing very well. Xbox just won a quarter in console sales. PlayStation does have two exclusives that have launched in the 2022 calendar year. And Nintendo continues to move switches at an alarming rate and bring great games to the market, even when most of them have been ports from old uh, Wii U titles. I mean, even Switch Sports seems to have disappointed a lot of people. And when I say that, that's such a silly statement because it's doing very well. It's very successful. It doesn't have the 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 landing that Wii Sports had because Wii Sports was an outlier and a success story that can't really be rivaled. So 
we got to be careful with the idea of suggesting that an entire community is upset or an entire uh, brand is failing when, in fact, everyone continues to win. Sony is doing extremely well. Uh, Nintendo is doing extremely well. Xbox is doing extremely well. It's just a matter of the metrics that we use at any given time, at any point in the discussion. Um, it, it's, it's akin to saying a game is successful because of its Steam concurrent numbers. Steam is one aspect of a gaming community that, while big and, and notable, isn't the only aspect, right? It's not a fair barometer. It's same thing with like Twitch numbers. Uh, they can be easily inflated or the data can be easily misleading. And we want to be careful not to, to go in on that one. So, Edward, I really appreciate the, the question. I think it's a very fair question to ask. Like, are they worried about community has given up hope for the year or anything like that um, or excitement for their titles? Um, I don't think Microsoft is giving up, is worried about that aspect. They know they need to be in the goodwill and good graces of their community. Um, but I don't think the acquisitions are are the same thing as as the production of games, right? They don't they do need to show gameplay this year, but the reality is they're without dropping an exclusive in 2022, they're winning, right? Without having a next gen exclusive title, they're winning uh, in their own right, like in this past quarter and, and whatnot. So like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not worried about that one. And when I say winning again, it depends on the metrics you use. I'm not saying that by one winning, all the others are losing. In fact, this is a unique situation where all three are just immensely successful as the needs and demands of gaming are becoming more and more worldwide and money's being made hand in hand, money's being lost hand in hand, uh, but not all by the major players in there. So I really do appreciate the question. Um, and it's a great question to ask, but I don't think it's it's a an apples and oranges thing. Uh, the next question comes from Dano. It's a fun one. He says, what spinoff from a game would you like to see? We've got Gears Tactics, Halo Wars, etc. But what type of spinoff could you see yourself getting excited for? Dano, I, I think you're going to hear this a lot from me. I'm really hopeful that we get a third-person Halo title at some point. Uh, and I'll also be excited for Halo Wars 3. I love Halo Wars. Uh but outside of Halo, there, there are other games that I would like to see. I, I know that I'm not in a minority in the Xbox community, but like Halo 3, Halo Wars 3 is not going to bring a ton of new people in. I just don't see that happening. That's a brand that's fairly niche, even though the games are genuinely incredible. Uh, a third person Halo game would certainly be interesting. I think a lot of people would check it out. Um, but, but I don't see it truly happening. Now, spinoffs that I've not kind of mentioned before, I'd love to see a Call of Duty-style real-time strategy game. Real-time strategy, not... Uh, oh, gosh, what is it? When you, when, you know, like Gears Tactics, where it's like, point here, go here, where you each have your own strategy. I can't remember it in this moment. I'm so embarrassed. But a real-time strategy game in the world of Call of Duty would be really cool. I think you could do some interesting things with kill streaks and defense streaks and... Uh, something similar to leader powers and other games. I think that'd be really interesting to watch call of duty, kind of a, a forgive the, the wording here, but the, a modern warfare RTS on consoles would be really fascinating. I would love for them to, to explore that one in a way that we really haven't gotten since command and conquer or, you know, the niche titles of halo wars. I would also love uh, tower defense titles, perhaps in the world of elder scrolls, fallout or doom tower defense titles are really cool. And they present a lot of cool options, but if they stay focused on like what makes a tower defense title a tower defense game, 
they could really do a lot of cool stuff with the Elder Scrolls universe or the Fallout universe and and battling different types of monsters. And even in the Doom space, you know, like there's a lot of story lore that would make sense in the Doom Eternal world that a tower defense would be neat to watch happen. Um, I don't, I mean, I like that'd be fascinating. And then lastly, Dano, the one that I thought of was a, a Gears of War first per, a third person adventure horror title. Think Tomb Raider meets the evil within but set in the gears of war universe where you're underpowered and you're being hunted by locusts at any given time i think that would be really cool there are some stories in the gears universe that would lend themselves to a horror version of things and you could be playing it and crafting like in tomb raider exploring like in tomb raider but you're constantly being hunted perhaps by a pack of elite locusts and you're dealing with the krill nighttime is all that more threatening i would love a gears of war horror game um, and I continue to, to request third person because Xbox has just got so much first person stuff, right? So much in the first person space. Think, think about Doom. Think about Avowed. Think about, uh, well, oh my gosh, Elder Scrolls. And there's just, there's just, it's too much first person. I want more third person. Um, that's just me. That's a preference by me. But that's those are the the ideas that I came up with when I saw your your question it's a great question i love it um but yeah that's what i'd like to see in the spinoff space and my pipe dream is that we get something akin to that a third person halo game shown at this showcase would be dope 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 all right this last question is a heavy one and i love the question from Artor gaming and it refers to a certain situation that occurred in the xbox community space uh, this past week that brought up some great questions so Artor wrote, writes in where do you stand on the gamer score credentials test for prominent community members? Is it right to vocally associate with and champion a gaming brand if you don't particularly use it regularly yourself, at least in the eyes of others? Okay, Artur, this is a great question that I want to be very clear for listeners that are not informed about it. This question, I believe, is in reference to uh, Twitter user Miss Deus Geek, whose real name is Diana. I hope I pronounced that properly. She's an Xbox MVP, the first Xbox MVP from the Australia, New Zealand part of the world. She's the founder of Women of Xbox. She's the founder of Attack on Geek. Uh, and she does a ton in the way of uh, bringing attention to uh, bring attention to, to female gamers and working to diversify a, a marginalized group within gaming, that is women. Uh, she penned a tweet this past week in support of Xbox and Phil Spencer after seeing some of the neg negativity surrounding the Redfall and Starfield delays. Now, given the polarity of the, that kind of a tweet, right, where you're going to say Phil Spencer's doing a great job and Xbox is okay despite losing its two major exclusives, uh, the Twitter community kind of went in and, and looked a little bit closer at Diana's gamer score, which, ten, which came in around roughly 9K, uh, and they started to attack her for not being enough of a gamer. And to my way of thinking, that is a very silly metric to go on to judge anybody. Uh, gamer score is, is distributed very unevenly amongst games. It's a metric that's wholly broken to suggest how long someone plays games or how much they play. I mean, there is a lot of, and there's even a lot of like circumstantial elements. Like what if they have a dummy account to review games or they had to change their account name or whatnot, suggesting that somebody's gamer score is in fact credibility to a gaming community is very, very silly particularly when you can work in the gaming community to bring attention to things, to bring people into the fold, to spotlight successful stories within a gaming community and never play games yourself, right? Like you don't need to play games to be a member of a gaming community. I, I think that's a big misconception. Uh, and more to the point, if we want to examine the voices in gaming, 
we should be asking ourselves, is this person being kind to others? Are they taking efforts to elevate others while they themselves gain prominence? In the example of Diana, she's the first uh, MVP for Australia and New Zealand for Xbox, and she did found Women of Gaming. She's continuing to work to spotlight different people throughout gaming and working with Xbox as a company overall on inclusivity. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying, I can, you can scroll her successes, uh, a women in games ambassador, founder of the non, a nonprofit community group, which is women of Xbox. She's worked with, with Microsoft to, uh, be more exclusive. She's in the Xbox hall of, of fame. I, I don't understand why we are using gamer score to attack anybody given how broken the metric truly is, uh, or why we are using that as anything other than oh, this person has a gamer score of this amount, right? Like I have I have a certain gamer score that is not indicative of my time played. I can only get so much gamer score in a certain game before the hours will surpass what, what it looks like I'm investing into it. And uh, some games don't even distribute gamer score properly. Think about how many people play Fortnite and put hours and hours in. They're not getting gamer score for that. Um, and, and specifically, Artur, today, um, and again, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, she is a wonderful ambassador of the Xbox brand. She's joyful on her streams. She, she's uh, one of the first female mixer partners at the time. She tries to make gaming more inclusive for everybody. Uh, to me, that's the best of the best. I don't know how we can be upset for, with someone for trying to elevate a gaming and using gamer score, which is such a, a silly metric, to suggest that they're the best. I see many community members uh, in the Xbox gaming space that have over a million gamer score. Um, that are negative and, and put people down and judge others. And there's people like, there's a lot of people out there that have fantastically high gamer score that is manipulated, manipulated rather. You can get gamer score very easily. If you know how to play your cards, right. Um, you think about some of, some of the voices in gaming that I can think of that have over a million gamer score. I'm thinking about Patrick Maka, Randall Thor, Stallion, and they all represent very different levels of influence within the gaming community, different areas of influence, some in the podcast space, some in the YouTube creation space, some in the streaming space. And I mean, just of those three, those are the three I can think of, but there are so many more that I've seen with high gamer score that do nothing but attack others or put down others. Or once they gain their clout, they refuse to, to help elevate those with marginalized voices. So, I don't believe that gamer score is a good metric that we should be judging on. I don't think it's fair to judge somebody on that uh, by any means. I mean, what's Sarah Bond's gamer score? Does it matter? Does it matter at all? No, not in the slightest. Uh, my gamer score is a certain number, right? Does that matter to you guys? Like, if I don't tell you my gamer score, like, does it really matter to you? Now, yeah, it it doesn't. Let's just put it simply. It doesn't. Gamer score is a silly and broken metric that is circumstantial at best, and we should not be using it to put anybody down at all. Um, it's kind of like it's kind of like judging someone for not being a good enough fan because they can't afford something or because they don't have the time to put in. Right? Are you a Batman fan if you haven't been able to watch the latest Batman movie? Well, what a silly metric. Maybe you're busy. Maybe you're working two jobs. Maybe you just haven't gotten around to it. Maybe things got in the way. Maybe you couldn't afford HBO Max. Maybe you couldn't afford a, a, t a movie ticket. There are realities that people face that we should not be judging others of. Can you still love Batman? Heck yeah, you can. Absolutely you can. Um, shoot, I'll use my own self. Like recently, like I can't afford to realistically go to E3 or the, or the Bethesda Showcase Fan Fest. I can't really afford to drop two grand on that for a two-day event. Does that mean I'm not an Xbox fan? 
No, that's a silly thing to, to worry about. So keep in mind, there are there's far more layered conversations to be had, but um, I don't think she listens, but I will I will say if anybody's willing to pass on the message to, to Diana, um, I think she's a fantastic voice for our community. I am better for following her at various points in my, my gaming space. Um, I've watched her streams when she was on Mixer. I've seen her stream before more recently. Um, she, she's a great, great human being and a great brand ambassador, and, and I'm proud to support that um, for whatever that means to anybody else. And I, th- yeah, yeah, we'll call it on that one. Um, guys, I'm playing a few games right now. At the moment, I'm playing Sniper Elite 5, which I'll give you impressions on in next week's episode. Uh, I think we can talk about, let's see, when 20 seconds? Yeah, uh, I'm really liking it a lot. Beautiful, fun, more Sniper Elite. Uh, playing Multiverses, that game is dope. Multiverses is so good, guys. It is absolutely Smash Brothers with different characters. I am not elite in Smash Brothers at all. I love the game, but like I'm not elite at it. Multiverses is just awesome. Um, I don't know what they'll do with the economies and how they'll handle some of the spendings, but playing as the different characters right now, I'm having an absolute blast in this closed beta. And later, I believe in July, there's going to be an open beta. This is a big game. And if, if Microsoft is smart, they will partner with Multiverses for marketing because this game is has the potential to be huge, 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 huge. And I'm really loving the characters, the diversity. It's silly. It's fun. Crossovers are the best. Um, they just make me so happy. And it also shows me that Xbox, if you're going to make a fighter, don't make a smash clone, make it, uh, a killer instinct, mortal Kombat, street fighter style because multiverses, I believe is going to be the name of the game in, in this smash style space, uh, for sure. Uh, I also have Dolman on hold. I got that code late. It was in my spam folder. I'm sorry, uh, Thomas, but the Dolman is on hold, but I'm going to be playing that one at some point as my schedule starts to free up. Guys, before we get to the Ed Freeze interview, I would love it if you would take a moment, click like if you're on YouTube. Uh, If you are able to rate over on iTunes or Spotify, please do so. It does mean the world. I'm a pretty small podcast who's been punching above my weight of late, and I would really love to bring more eyes to the show. And you can do that by sharing the show and and rating the show, subscribing. Um, All that stuff means the world. Uh, I don't frequent Reddit, but if if my content is worthy of a certain subreddit, please feel free to share it there. It just... Helping me bring eyes to this stuff is, is really cool. Uh, next week, you can expect uh, my interview with John McLaren, who plays Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy. That's already recorded. Um, if it's not next week, it'll be the week after, because I'm also sitting down with the Red Out 2 team, and Red Out 2 is launching this upcoming week. Um, I'm a big fan of Red Out in the absence of the old PlayStation Wipeout games and, and nothing really happening on that space. Anti-Grav Racers are dope, and I'm excited for Red Out 2, so I'm going to talk to them as well. Those are my two kind of upcoming interviews. Um, yeah, and then go back, check out the Jeff Steitzer interview. It's fun. It's a good one. All right. I'm going to send you guys to my interview with Ed Freeze. Some incredible stuff there on Xbox in Japan, on his career, why we've been successful in some markets. And he uh, throws some great support for Phil Spencer, but also questions some of the business decisions that Xbox has uh, moving right now that he believes are dangerous to the gaming industry. So uh, enjoy that interview. There's a calm brilliance about it. Very, very measured takes on things. Um, but yeah, work your way through that one. I think you'll find some joy in it. Thank you, everybody. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. I am very fortunate and honored now to welcome to the show a longtime Xbox and gaming veteran, Ed Freeze. Uh, We argued and discussed and debated the title that I would give you, Ed. (laughs) 
uh, we bounced around some ideas. What's the right title to give Ed Freeze? Yeah, well, uh, my real title right now is I'm general partner of One Up Ventures, which is the venture fund that I run to support video game developers around the world. So we'll go with my current title. And you've held, you're holding that title now, but you've held many other uh, in years past co-creator of Excel, which is is wild to me, and that's crazy <laughs> cool. And then you were on the original uh, Xbox team. I believe the appropriate title at one point was former vice president of game publishing at Microsoft. Is that correct? I would say former vice president of Microsoft Game Studios. Yeah, that's okay. what we like to call it back then. Yeah. You'd be surprised how many different descriptors you have in your name. And doing research to, to chat with you, there's a lot of different articles with a lot of different ways to describe your career. And uh, that's what makes me so excited to have you on here. Um, let's Great. start. We'll, we'll create another one. Yeah, there we go. Let's do it. There we are. Um, so, Ed, let's start with some of the challenges. In the very beginning, you were a part of the team that brought X, the Xbox uh, as a brand and as an actual device to the forefront of gaming. You helped bring it to market in the very beginning. Uh, what was it like bringing something to life in a gaming space where it was essentially being dominated by two other power players? That's starting at the beginning. I think that's starting in the middle, but okay, we'll start, we'll start there. Take me back um, further if you need to. Take me back further. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, uh, boy, how far back? I'll go back to uh, when I was a kid in high school. Uh, I really fell in love with video games. There weren't very many video games when I was a kid in the, in the kind of late, 70s and early 80s but it was it was kind of the time of the arcade machines were starting to come out and the first personal computers were coming out and uh i was lucky enough to get my hands on an atari 800 and kind of taught myself to program and started making games for the machine just for fun for my friends to play and um yeah that's kind of how i got in the game business in the first place um a company in California saw a Frogger, a version of Frogger that I wrote called Froggy. <laughs> and they, um, yeah, anyway, that was that was the start. They, they offered me a job and I worked for them kind of in the end of high school and going into college. Um, and then the whole video game industry melted down in 1984. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had to get a real job. Um, I grew up in Bellevue, Washington, which is next to Redmond, Washington, which is where a famous Microsoft company was um, and so I applied there and worked as an intern in 1985, and then um, they hired me full time when I graduated college in '86. Um, yeah, and that's where the Excel part uh, comes from. I, I was the youngest programmer of seven on the first version of Excel for Windows, and I worked on spreadsheets for five years, and then I worked on word processors for five years. And everybody thinks of Microsoft as this giant company, which it is these days. But back then, it was pretty small. And kind of all the areas that I ever worked in in 18 years in the company, we were always the underdogs. So when I was working on Excel, we were trying to beat a company uh, called Lotus that had a, had a program called Lotus 123, mm -hmm. which was the biggest spreadsheet in the world, kind of spreadsheet plus other stuff. And mm -hmm. then... I moved over to work on Word, and we were battling Word Perfect, which was the most popular word processing program. 
Mm-hmm. And then I, after 10 years working my way up, starting as a junior programmer, um, I got to do what I really wanted to do, which was get back into the game business out of being, after being out of it for more than a decade. And so what brought that, you for, to make that step? How, how did you even think to make that step? So basically what happened was I, you know, I was a programmer, uh, you know, one of seven, like I mentioned on Excel. And then um, after we shipped that first version, the team got bigger. And those of us who were on the original team, we started managing small teams and the team got bigger and the lead programmer left. And then I became the lead programmer. And then my boss moved over to run Word and, and then the development manager on Word quit because he didn't get along with my boss. So then I went over and worked as the development manager on Word. And so I was just kind of, you know, I, I loved really two things. I loved I loved video games and I loved uh, programming. And those were kind of what I was doing, you know, uh, all the time. Either I was making games and programming or I was playing games at home and, and programming at work, right? Mm-hmm. But then my job kept changing. They kept giving me more responsibility, right, to manage teams of people and bigger and bigger teams. And pretty soon my job got so big that the next step in my job was to run a business. And so they said, you know, we really think you should run a business of the company. What business do you think you want to run? And Mm -hmm. I looked all around and um, I found after a long search the business that I really wanted to run. And that was the video game business at Microsoft. And I told my bosses, hey, I found it. I found the job that I really want. You know, I only, I, I really love to, you know, two things, programming and video games. If I can't do programming, how about video games? And um, they, they all told me it was a terrible idea. <laughs> they told me I was committing career suicide. And they told me, why would you leave office, one of the most important parts of the company, to go work on something no one cares about? Um, and <laughs> those are all quotes. Um, and what uh, games, if you don't mind my interrupting, what games were involved at the time for Microsoft then? Yeah, not many, not many. They had, um, they had flight simulator. That was mm-hmm. what they were known for. Uh, there was a smallish team, maybe around a hundred people total, but not even, even less who were full time. They had a bunch of contractors. Um, but, but, uh, flight simulator was their big cash cow. Um, and they were just starting to experiment with some, some more modern games. Um, and so they, they put out a game called Fury Cubed before I got there. And that was a a, a 3d game. 3d was new with graphics accelerators back then. We're talking about the mid nineties right now. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, uh, I interviewed with the team and I met a lot of good people and they had big plans for going forward. One of the things that they showed me when I interviewed was this real-time strategy game. They were just starting to work with work on with a little company in, in Dallas, Texas. Uh, the company was called Ensemble Studios. Mm-hmm. And the, that's the game that would become Age of Empires. Wow. Um, and so I was a big Command and Conqueror, Dune 2 Command and Conqueror player at that time. And so I was excited to see a real-time strategy game from Microsoft. And, you know, it was one of the reasons I wanted to, wanted to join and run the team. So, yeah, so I came over and um, 
there was a great team already in place, lots of people with lots of industry experience, and we just started to grow and grow. Um, Flight Simulator was bringing in a bunch of cash, and we were reinvesting that to grow the team. And then uh, Age of Empires was a big hit, and that helped us grow even faster. And we started acquiring different game companies, and we were... Um, you know, just continuing to grow on the PC side. And once again, you know, we were really the underdogs. I mean, in that, at that time, we were trying to compete with people like Electronic Arts. You know, that was our goal to be like as big as Electronic Arts someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we grew the PC business um, for several years and things were going well. And um, and I was just, had just been starting to think about you know, it was starting to get harder and harder to get the next kind of point of uh, market share in the PC business. You know, we got up into the teens and just to get the next, you know, another percentage of market share, another percentage of market share was just getting harder and harder. But there was this whole market we hadn't been in at all, which was the console business. And we were only making PC games. And so I was thinking, of, boy, it would be nice if we could make some console games. Well, what do we know about console games? We have, we have no experience at all in that area. Um, and of course, I was a console gamer at home too. Um, and I, you know, I knew the games were different. Um, but um, what consoles were in your home at the time? Well, um, I was at Nintendo 64 was probably the, the main console that I, that I played at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, you know, that means I have to interrupt and ask, what were your favorites? What did you play? I was a big fan of Diddy Kong Racing, actually. I was a fan of Rare, mm-hmm. um, Rare games in general. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but Diddy Kong was one of the games that I loved to play. But, of course, uh, Mario 64 was the classic, and I played a ton of that as well mm-hmm. on that machine. Um, so um, anyway, so, so that's kind of puts, you know, tells you kind of where my head was at. And then... Um, you know, now we're getting into the late nineties. One day these guys walked into my office from the DirectX team Mm -hmm. and the DirectX team is the part of windows that, uh, programmers talk to, to make games. So they were the game people who worked on the windows operating system and they had a crazy idea and they said, we think Microsoft should make their own game console, our own game console. Um, and since they were from DirectX team, it would be the Direct Xbox or just Xbox for short. Um, and they pitched me on this idea. And basically at that time, it was just going to be, uh, it was going to be, um, a PC disguised as a game console. Basically it was Mm going to be a PC in a box running windows, but from the user experience point of view, it would look like a game console would act like a PlayStation. You'd stick a, a, a CD in it and it would install the game quietly on the hard disk and then it would run it. Um, and that was the original plan. Um, and I, and I thought, wow, this is going to make it easier for my team and our games to get on, into, to compete in the console space. So I agreed to support them and basically run first party for the project to become responsible for all games that, that came from the, the platform. Uh, for Microsoft. That is a huge undertaking. And when you look at the idea, like you guys have built this box to compete 
in a home console market, you've then got to build a portfolio. Uh, where's your mind at at this one? Like, are, are you feeling pressure or is it pure excitement? What's going through your mind? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I feel like I had already been through a few big battles, you know, like fighting Lotus one, two, three with Excel and fighting word perfect with word. And so, you know, there was probably a certain amount of cockiness that, you know, Microsoft could do anything it sets its mind to. Um, but there was, you know, that was sort of combined with a profound level of naivete too. that we just really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, mm-hmm. which, which, which was pretty true for a lot of stuff that we did at Microsoft in, in reality. We would like, we would uh, try to do big ambitious things and, um, you know, a lot of times it helps to be naive because if you really knew how hard it was going to be, you probably would get discouraged before you even started. So, mm-hmm. uh, but actually to do it, we had to first uh, battle a whole nother part of the company that it turned out it had a very similar idea and also wanted to build the game console for Microsoft. And, and this is the internal team that the Power On documentary discussed. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and they were guys who they were some 3DO ex-3DO guys who um, had uh, gotten involved with uh, Sega and with the Dreamcast, and they're the reason there's a little Windows sticker on on Sega Dreamcasts, even though no one I know ever booted their Dreamcast into Windows mode because there was really no reason to do it. But um, but yeah, it was that group, the Windows CE group. Um, and yeah, so we had a big internal fight with them and then we had, um, a big, and then we spent a year kind of like figuring out what we're going to do. Basically we had a, we, we had a big fight with them. They, their vision for what Microsoft should do was, uh, was a completely custom machine, kind of like the PlayStation custom hardware, custom software. And the vision that we first pitched to Bill and Steve was, uh, uh much more, uh, uh, Microsoft, m- more consistent with Microsoft strategy. It was going to be a PC architecture. It was going to run Windows um, and and play games. And so we kind of won that first battle because what we pitched was was more on strategy, to use Microsoft phrasing. Um, and so their project got shut down, and some of them moved over and joined our project. And then we then we spent the next year trying to figure out what we really should do. And the more we looked at it, the more our project slowly drifted from being just a, a disguised PC in a box to being more and more custom until it ended up kind of somewhere in between. It still had a basic PC architecture. It still had a hard disk, mm-hmm. um, but it had pretty much completely custom software. Um, and it was really designed to run one thing at a time, a game, you know, so it really gave all the, you know, back then memory was, you know, expensive. And I mean, memory always feels expensive because you always want more of it. But, um, you know, giving up a bunch of your precious memory to run an operating system like Windows just didn't seem like a smart thing to do the more Mm -hmm. we looked at it. So anyway, um, 
Then we had a really, really big meeting with uh, Bill and Steve to get approval for the Xbox. And I get really sick of telling the story, so I'm going to do a really short version of it so we can talk <laughs> about other stuff. But that's the that's this meeting called the Valentine's Day Massacre meeting. And mm-hmm. basically it was a long, difficult meeting that happened on Valentine's Day where we got yelled at for four hours. And then at the end they, they said, okay, we're going to do it. And um, <laughs> they gave us... Uh, all the approval to, to spend billions of dollars to make this thing. Um, and then once we came out of that meeting, we basically had, it was in February of 2000, and we were going to ship in, in November of 2001. So we had less than two years to make the whole machine, hardware and software, um, and ship it, which... That is when I started to get nervous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's when it really hit me. Like, <laughs> what did I just sign up for? Games normally take three years to make, and we're gonna we're gonna have, uh, you know, I have to have a launch lineup of games in November two thousand and one. That's like eighteen months or what away before they mm-hmm. have to go off to manufacturing. So eighteen months from 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 launch date you've got to figure out a way to get a portfolio of, of titles you've got to entice different people to kind of come over and see where you're at uh, i think we and I'm, I'm excited to get to this but i want to start just there you were the one that that brought bungie in which is huge but i'm curious before we get there uh we've mentioned the dreamcast and we've mentioned some of the aspects of, of Sega and its, its one-time kind of competitor in 3DO. How much of a role did Sega play in that first Xbox, given kind of where they were headed with the Dreamcast and the talent, the titles, and some of the hardware designs? I mean, they even had a uh, an internal modem at one point. Yeah. You know, Sega was a good partner to Microsoft, and I don't know exactly how far back that relationship went, but I don't, I don't know the history behind it all. But I, I do know that um, as soon as I took the job in the mid-90s, actually like the week I joined, the week I, I got put in charge of the group, people came to me and they said, hey, we're going to Tokyo next week. Do you want to come? I'm like, yeah, I want to go to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So I love my new job. I get to go to Tokyo and we went to Tokyo and we ran around and we met with a bunch of people. We met with Capcom and they showed me um, a really early version of the first Resident Evil um, and went to Konami and they showed me the prototype Dance Dance Revolution machine, uh, but also went to Sega and and met with several of the teams there and met with Yu Suzuki, who's kind of a legendary developer there. And, uh, and, and pretty much ever since then, when I went to J- Japan, I would always go to Sega and meet people there and talk to their teams and we'd look for ways to collaborate. So they were always, they were always a good partner to Microsoft. Um, as far as once the project started, my main focus was getting our first party games done. So the ones that were published by Microsoft something that came from Sega would be third party. And so that went through someone else after we shipped, uh, it ultimately all ended up under me, but mm-hmm. before shipping, I just, I had a big enough job just trying to, I, I mean, by manage my, by then more than a thousand person team and, and get our, our first party titles out. Um, so, you know, I wasn't, 
super involved in the Sega relationship as far as what games got made. Mm-hmm. Okay. A thousand people. That seems like a lot to manage for a fairly new, I want to say a new division of the company. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah, it was. When I, when I took the job, when I first took the job, I found out that, that games was just like, I, that I was part of a group called Kids and Games. It, where games wasn't even like the first word in the name of the division. It was Weird. Kids and Games. And there was a group that did kids and a group that did games. And I'm like, okay, my group's just going to do games. We're going to focus on games. But pretty soon I had the ability to change the name of the group. So somebody else was kids and we were games. So, But it kind of showed the focus at Microsoft or lack of focus on games at the beginning. At the beginning, what somebody said to me, you know, about the why would you leave office to go work on something no one cares about was really true. Nobody cared about it except me and you know the group of people within that team who believed that games were important um and um so yeah it was interesting you know just five years later that microsoft was committing to this huge multi-billion dollar xbox project um and that my team had grown to it actually grew to about 1200 um, by the time we launched but um yeah so crazy times um but yeah we were we were just so heads down focused on how can we get some games out for launch. And, you know, fortunately we had, you know, we had been making PC games at that point for a while now, and we had good systems in place. We had good people in place. We had whole teams of these product planners, which were basically what you would call um, A&R people. If you use the music industry words, um, means people who are kind of like talent scouts who are out talking to game developers around the world and looking for things. And so those guys would bring back different game opportunities that they, they would find and we'd review them. And back then, you know, we would, we were signing a lot of things up because we're like, we're, we're, we're trying to get this thing done. But, you know, the first big deal was really, um, well, I would say, I, I don't know. I mean, was, you know, working with Bizarre Creations on Project Gotham was one of the very first. Um, you know, they had done a racing game before that for Dreamcast. And so the idea of taking that game and then modifying it to become a racing game for Xbox in 18 months seems like, seemed like a doable thing. And so they were they came on very early and were you know, one of the cornerstones of our launch was to say, okay, we've got the racing category check. Um, but Lauren Lanning was very, was right around the same time. And, you know, this opportunity came up, the, this um, company called GT Interactive was wanted to sell their 50% ownership in Lauren's company. And, you know, for us, the idea that we could get, um, uh, not just get a, a franchise, you know, that was already popular on console, a great, great spokesman in Lord Lanning, um, but also take them away from Sony. You know, it's like a win-win, right? We're going to get a game and a great, great spokesperson, all this, and we're going to take that away from our competitor. Um, that's sort of Microsoft thinking, I guess, <laughs> competitive thinking. Even know? to this day, it feels like that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we worked hard to get that deal done and get Lauren on board. And, you know, Lauren, you've talked to him. He's just a, such a pleasure to work with and such a fun guy and, and, and so, so great to put in front of the press. Uh, you know, 
he does he would do all the voice all the sound effects you know all the voice voices for the characters in the game and get him talking to the press and the in the game voices and it's just <laughs> everybody was laughing um yeah and then not so you know i'm kind of going through the months after february it's like march and april and as we got into you know around may may have some somewhere in there my phone rang one day and it was a guy i had met you know just hanging out in the industry for you know four or five years at that point a guy named peter tampty and he was the business guy for bungie and and i had been a fan of bungie's games um and, and i i had played several of them you know um, back before i knew i was going to even have this job and um and so he knew I was a fan of their work and he called me because they were kind of in financial trouble. And that was true of a lot of small developer publishers back then. It was really hard to be both to, to make games and distribute them because back then there wasn't any, there wasn't steam, there wasn't digital distribution. You know, it's not enough just to make a game. You have to somehow get it in stores all around the world and the world of, retail distribution was changing was getting more to be big box stores like walmart things like that and those stores didn't want to talk to a hundred little game publishers they want to talk to a few big ones and so anyway their business even though they were super talented was was having trouble and they said that they were likely going to go out of business and be acquired by take two uh if nothing else happened um and um Take Two already owned a third of their company, um, and you know I, I was I was looking for great developers, and here was one that just landed on my desk. So I, I worked hard to make that deal. They had just started to talk publicly uh, about um, this thing called Halo. I mean, one thing to know is they were a Mac first developer, and so they, you know they had showed kind of a super early video of what halo might look like at like a mac world some mac conference and mm -hmm. so that was kind of all we could see but it was i knew it was you know first person shooter and we didn't have that and here was a great opportunity to get it so i had to do a deal with ryan brandt who was the ceo of take two at that time um and basically we split the company up um, and he got all the back catalog. So all the old games that they made. And I said that we would finish the, they had a game in development called Oni. Um, I said, we would finish that for them and then give it to them so they could ship it. And all I wanted was Halo and all the developers. That was, that was all I cared about. Um, and that was the deal. I got Halo and, and the developers and they got everything else. Uh, why halo if it's a first person shooter <laughs> that hadn't been done much in console space you have golden eye your 64 days coming in but not really a big thing why halo yeah you know we were we were really um pc gamers at heart right and pc games are different than console games in ways we didn't always understand very well but for us First-person shooter was huge in the 90s, right? And networked first-person shooter, even more huge, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was just a category that seemed so obviously missing from the console world. You know, we 
we love those kinds of games. But we were always kind of wondering, well, do we like this game because really we're PC gamers? And so that's why we like it because we don't actually get uh, get console games or um, or is it because it's just really good? But, you know, uh, it turned out we were kind of right in both ways. Um, you know, the world was ready to change and the consoles were console gamers were ready for piece, a PC style game and a first person shooter game. Um, you know, people like to point to Goldeneye, but um, how many have ever played Goldeneye? I encourage you to do it if you haven't played it. You have a single analog stick in the center of the controller. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> it doesn't play like a modern first-person shooter. Um, it's um, it's actually kind of painful to play, but um, but it, but you know, it pioneered some aspects of of what what became um, what became Halo. Man, that's. There's just so many elements of that that are interesting. And I'm curious, the idea, your PC guys trying trying a game on console, not sure if you like it because of the PC background and whatnot, but it's networked. Did did the idea of, of the Xbox being networked get influenced by some of the games you guys were planning and hoping to bring in? Was it the other way around? Was it always the case? Did one influence the other? It was always the plan that it that it should be networked. Um, in fact, there was very early on, there was the question about whether it would have a modem in it or not. And, uh, my boss, Robbie Bach ended up making the final decision and saying, no, it's, we're going to use this ethernet port. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're thinking ethernet port is like, that was brand new technology. Like nobody had that. There was no way in, in like 99% of the homes in the country to plug your, plug something with an ethernet port into the wall. Um, you know, you could do it at an office maybe, but not in people's homes. Uh, and but, expensive uh, too, right? It would have been, ex- the expensive thing would have been to do both. <laughs> you know, that, that was the thing about that. He made the decision. It's actually cheaper to put an ethernet port on than to put a modem. Cause a modem is a whole other bunch of electronics. Um, but, um, but it was it was a real bet on the future, and you know, I mean, and it turned out Xbox Live wasn't even going to come out for an, a whole another year after Xbox launched. So, um, really, I, I'm pretty sure Halo was the only game that shipped at the beginning that had support just for the Ethernet port, and that was just just so for people to make ad hoc networks, basically to connect Xboxes together. Um, so uh, yeah, it all it all worked out in the end. I would I would think so. Is it uh, a fair proposition to suggest that without Bungie and Halo, Xbox doesn't make it? I think I think it's pretty likely. Actually, I think it's pretty likely. I mean, we went into launch with basically equal weighting on um, on Oddworld and Halo. Um, you know, one was we had this, you know, creator who was well known among console gamers who, who had built a great game with Munch's Odyssey. Um, and the other, you know, was Halo, which which to us as PC gamers, really, we were really happy with. I mean, it was the game we were all playing at night, you know, mm-hmm. on the weekends. Um, but were we like the console audience or were we totally different? You know, we didn't know. So we kind of kind of um, 
had enough money, fortunately, for the launch to hedge, hedge our bets and just go, you know, the most marketing focused on those two titles. Mm-hmm. And one of them, one of them really worked. Um, I mean, Munch sold okay, but, um, but Halo was the system seller by mm-hmm. far. Did the acquisition of Bungie and getting Halo out there, pulling away a PlayStation competitor with Munch's Odyssey, and did did that help, I guess you would say, entice others and rally others to your cause? Did it make it easier for you to go places and say, hey, come make games for Xbox? Yeah, I mean, another aspect that we haven't talked about was how dominant Japan was in the console world at that time. And that's Mm -hmm. another lens you should look at this through. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the biggest console game developers were Japanese. All the biggest franchises were Japanese. You know, ever since the, the crash that I mentioned of the video game business in 1984, that the American console makers went away and in that crash, including the company that I work for. And, they, and here it was 20 years later, and they weren't back. You know, the people who own the industry were the Japanese. And, and so we would go to Japan and try to convince the Japanese to support our platform. And they were, it was very, it was complicated and delicate for a couple of reasons. One is, first of all, you have this like cross-cultural communication trying to happen. Um, and it took a while for those of us who spent a lot of time in Japan to understand the Japanese way of negotiating and the Japanese way of doing business. Um, Why but, is it so different? I'm asking out of ignorance, so I apologize. But w- what was so different? What is so different about it? it you know, it's uh, here. Let me tell you by telling you a story. Um, okay. So this happened early on in my career. When I took over the games group, we were making a game for Namco, a set of arcade classics. And it was actually the sequel to one that, that we, had, we had already put out. We put out one and then, but, but under my predecessor. And then I came on and then we put out, we, we were going to put out the next one. And it was already under development. Everything was going good with the project. I kept getting the status reports, but I kept getting told this one thing. Oh, but actually Namco hasn't signed the contract. <laughs> and so it goes on, we're making the games, making the, and, and pretty soon we're like about to ship this thing. And they're still telling me, yeah, but there's just this one little hitch. Namco hasn't signed the contract. I'm like, well, wait, we can't ship this thing. We don't have the rights to these games, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, what do I have to do to get Namco to sign the contract? And, you know, they went off and then they came back to me and they're like, you have to go to Japan. I'm like, okay, I'll go to Japan. What do I have to do? And they're just like, go to Japan, have dinner with the guys from Namco. Like, okay. So get on a plane, fly to Japan, have dinner with them, head, head of Namco, a bunch of his lieutenants, blah, blah, blah. Never talk about the contract, nothing. Fly back, contract signed. Everything's good. That sounds like some like movie stuff, like something you would see in a movie where you got to go and schmooze the client and talk them over and then bam, the deal's done. You know, it all depends on your perspective, you know? And what I learned from, 
from spending time at time there is that, I mean, if you look at it from the Japanese perspective, our way of doing business is way weirder than their way. You know, like our way is somebody you don't know shows up, hands mm -hmm. you this set of papers and, you know, and assumes that this set of the, 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 these, you know, words on this sheet of papers are going to like solve any problem that might come up between you two. Right. We're going to try to anticipate everything that could go wrong and put it as a clause in the, this contract. And then we're both going to sign this contract and we're going to work together. And, the, and that the lack of, I guess, intimacy in that, in that transaction is alien to them. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's, I actually, I've actually come to around to their point of view. I think it, it's a weird idea. I mean, I think, you know, their idea is, Hey, let's go have dinner. Let's get a little drunk. Let's hang out together. Let's find out whether we like each other, whether we trust each other, whether, mm -hmm. you know, um, and then, you know, our relationship that we're building this, this deal on is not about some words on a page that some lawyers wrote. In fact, we can use like a two page contract instead of a 50 page contract. It's about our relate, the relationship we have with each other, the trust that we've built up with each other. That's what we're doing. That's the deal. And so that, that for, for me was business in Japan. It was building relationships. It was spending time with people. Um, and, and so that was part of it, uh, learning that and then doing that. Um, but then also, you got to realize that these Japanese game developers were in a very difficult situation um, because basically the market, particularly in Japan, was dominated by Sony. Uh, and so Sony, if they pissed off Sony, Sony could kind of crush them. Mm -hmm. You know, so Sony was in a very strong position when they controlled the market, the majority of the market like they did then. Mm -hmm. And so... So they did not like the fact that Sony was in a strong position. They liked the fact that there was going to be another choice to Sony. Somebody big enough to stand up to Sony, uh, like Microsoft, they liked that because that, that was going to give them more leverage in the market, more of an opportunity to get what they want. But what if we failed? What if they bet on us? Sony takes away their ability to publish on PlayStation, say in the worst case, and then we fail, then they're screwed. You know? mm. So that was, that was what was sort of the undercurrent of those meetings um, was they wanted to support us. They wanted to help us and everybody would be happy to meet with us, you know, at Sega and Square and, and many others, but few of them were brave enough to stand up against Sony. And so we had a few rebels like Tecmo, you know, and the head of Tecmo was like willing to kind of play the two sides off against each other because he didn't have that much to lose, <laughs> frankly. Mm -hmm. um, he could be more daring than like a Square. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how we got Dead or Alive for the platform, which was, you know, probably the second or third best title on the, on the platform at launch. It was very important to have a fighting game on a console. Um, and we got a great one with Dead or Alive. 
you know, Itagaki-san supporting supporting the Xbox was huge. Um, but anyone who was supporting us in Japan was taking a risk, and Japan controlled the market then. They were the big guys. So it was really complicated. Yeah, important. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about how things worked and what you needed to do to bring the Japanese market and the Japanese developers to the Xbox side. I feel like that's still to this day a struggle and a talking point. I mean, I don't feel like we go two, three months uh, in, in the gaming space without hearing about Xbox and Japan on some level. Do you think that that personal relationship, that personal touch uh, was was missing for too long for Xbox? Maybe their leadership wasn't visiting. Maybe they didn't do something uh, right on that front or they didn't understand the business. And is it better now? A lot of things have changed. Um, for one thing that happened is that the Japanese game market collapsed under its own weight uh, after we launched. And I don't think Xbox really had anything to do with it. But, you know, the ja Japan in the 80s was flying high. Japan in the 90s started to have trouble. And then, you know, their, so their economy really struggled. Um, and continues to suffer today from what happened back then. Um, and Jap games were so big in Japan, it's hard to it's hard to explain. But it's a little like it was here in the '80s, where they were so big that they were they were a fad. And once you're so popular, you're a fad. You're only going to be around so long. And that's kind of what happened there. Is it was a fad that then kind of went out of fashion. And they've never really recovered to the, you know, to the point of the, the heyday there of where things were. Meanwhile, game development has really become, for the console world, has become a lot more global. And some of the biggest franchises are not in Japan anymore, right? Um, and so, um, so their role in the global ecosystem has become less important. But still, it's a very difficult market to do well in, in the home market. Um, we did not do well with Xbox sales in Japan at all. Um, and my advice on Xbox 360 was we shouldn't, we shouldn't try, basically. Um, this was right around the time that I left, but and they didn't listen to me. They kind of doubled down in Japan, and they didn't do any better than the first Xbox, so they probably should have listened to me. But anyway, um, <laughs> they um, it's 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 a market that they think of as their market, and it's a very they they I don't know. It's, it's just very tied into their culture. And so uh, a foreign game machine has a very, it, it's, it, it's very tough to be successful in Japan with a foreign game machine. I guess that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and so my, you know, Xbox has never been successful there and I, I don't, I don't think it ever will be. And I think that's, but the thing is, it's just, you know, It's not the same as it was. The, the importance of the Japanese market isn't as big as it was. 
back then. And without Japan, do you think Microsoft will be okay? I mean, they're the, they're, they're yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I do. I mean, um, I think it's, I think it's fine for Microsoft to focus on the rest of the world. I think they would have been better off if they did that sooner. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think that would cause a problem, uh, for on the development side of games? Like one of the people, JRPGs are a big genre and, uh, often talked about are, are the influences of Japanese studios. Do you think anything would be lost on that front? I mean, hmm, would anything be lost? Is something lost if you try, but you always fail? I mean, you know, like, like Microsoft just doesn't sell very many Xboxes in Japan. So is it, so is it, is the act of trying important is kind of at the core of your question, you know, mm-hmm. is, it, is, is it important to just try? I'm not sure it is. I mean, if you're trying, but nobody's buying what you're selling, maybe you should try something different. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's fantastic RPGs made in Japan. Um, you know, Square is still doing really cool stuff. Uh, but there's, well, I don't know. I mean, they're going to, you know, they're going to want to sell them in the rest of the world. If Microsoft has high market share in the rest of the world, hopefully Microsoft can can publish them there. I mean, like a lot of your listeners, probably I just just finished Elden Ring, and uh, you know what a fantastic product, mm-hmm. you know, from software in Japan, amazing team, really, you know, for me it's the game of the year. It's incredible. Uh, I'm glad it, I'm glad it's available on Xbox. But it isn't because we sold a lot of Xboxes in Japan that it's available on Xbox. <laughs> That's true. That's a really interesting take. And it's funny because it runs, your opinion right now runs counter to what I'm perceiving as their strategy of play anywhere, any device, do whatever you want to do, just log in and go. Do you think that's how Xbox is successful there? Or will it just never be as a brand? You know, like, well, I, I think when I first asked, you said uh, Xbox would never be successful there. Uh, I, I'm wondering if we were talking about the console, but if you have the ability to log in from a mobile device, is that a different uh, conversation? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Forever's a long time. <laughs> a good point. A good point. I mean, you know, like take cars, like, um, you're probably not old enough to remember, but I mean, like I grew up on the West coast and we like Japanese cars out here. A lot of people, you know, even when I was a kid, there were, you know, Toyotas were a really well-respected cars being, you know, inexpensive, but high quality. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I would go to the Midwest, I would just see American cars which, you know, in the 70s and 80s, at least, we would consider really junky cars, you know, like really unreliable and kind of old-fashioned. And um, But they, for them, it was like, I don't want some Japanese car here. I want to buy an American car. I'm in America. Mm-hmm. 
that's the way it is in Japan around game consoles. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. That's interesting. It's just it's it's just interesting to hear the insight. Uh, but let's let's move on a little bit. The thinking about the idea that you bring in Bungie, and that had to be this huge pivotal moment that started a cascade of of different decisions throughout the industry, of course. And then you look at today's Microsoft, where they're making acquisitions in the $70 billion range and expanding to 30-plus studios. Did you ever envision that you might have been the first in a, in what would eventually become a many billions of dollars uh, in building something like that? Like, you were the first wave in an eventual tsunami. Well, I'm proud. I'm proud of my role on Xbox. I'm proud of the the team of 1,200 people we had that really worked super hard to make it successful. You know, I think everyone who worked on it, uh, you know, who knew who knew right whether mm-hmm. for sure it was going to work, but we were all trying as hard as we could to make it work, and and it did. Uh, and so that's that's great. Um, I, uh, you know, as far as where they are now, um, I'm a big fan of where they are now. I, you know, I'm, I, you know, Phil Spencer was hired into my group. I knew him when he came in. Um, he was a great part of our team then. I was very happy when he took over Microsoft, you know, over Xbox. Um, there were sometimes between when I left in 04 and when he took over where I think they, they were a little lost and kind of made some poor decisions. But, um, I think, I think what he's been doing uh, has really been great for Xbox and great for the industry. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really happy that he's there. I'm not sure, um, under different management, if it, if it would still be around. That's interesting. The it's for me, it's always interesting to look at where people started to where they are now and what it was they were doing at one point uh, in their career to where they end up. And, you know, after you left Microsoft, you ended up doing or or consulting with a startup company that ended up getting sold to Sony. And to me, it's just funny how cyclical uh, the games industry can sometimes be. Uh, When you looked at what, what, can you tell me as a part of that deal, like what it was like to interact with Sony on that front, having spent so many years with Microsoft? Yeah. What I would say is, um, the game business is relatively chummy (laughs) in the sense that, um, like even when I was on Xbox working on Xbox, I had friends down the street at Nintendo. Um, and I had friends at Sony. Um, I knew Phil Harrison, for example, quite well. Um, from be- even before we started Xbox and, and, and when we were running Xbox and he was one of the top PlayStation guys at that time. I knew several different people at Nintendo. They were, they were always kind to me. Um, and um, so, um, and, and just in general among game companies, um, people tend to help each other, uh, you know, you can really kind of feel the spirit of the game industry. If you go to a GDC, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, people get up and give talks and share how they do things and what the secret sauce is in their game. And I think there's sort of the, just this feeling that we're all in it together, that this is, a, you know, we're creating this new medium that's, you know, the gonna, games are going to be the biggest 
uh, entertainment business in the world, which they are now. Um, and that, you know, and that it's really hard what we do. The idea of combining software with entertainment is really hard. It's everything that can go wrong with a piece of software, like in Excel or something, combined with everything that can go wrong with a, a movie, you know, like Waterworld or something. So, um, <laughs> underrated movie. I still say to this day. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. I compared Excel to Waterworld too. That's not fair. I should have, I should have picked a, a success to go with the success of Excel. But anyway, um, but you know, games are games are really hard, and so everyone who works in the the business, I think, um, understands that it's best if they all help each other. So we tend to have that attitude, and that's true for the the venture fund that I'm running now. I mean, I, I started this fund three and a half years ago with. The whole idea is to connect small founders of, of, of game companies, actually founders of small game companies. The founders themselves aren't small. And, um, and, and you know, encourage them to work together and share and collaborate. And so that's what One Adventures is all about. We create a community of 50 founders of 50 game companies and get them all working together and helping each other. Helping each other to do what? to do everything that it takes to run a, run a game company, which is, first of all, everything it takes to run a company. Like, um, how do you hire a person in, in uh, Canada when you're a U.S. company? Mm-hmm. How do you do this? How do you do that? You know, just, just the, the stuff that nobody thinks about in, in running companies is actually a lot of work. Then it's like, what about how do you do the different things within your area of expertise? Uh, and so that's that's what one up is all about building tight relationships among the founders so that they they grow to trust each other kind of like that japanese idea we were talking about earlier that when you spend time with people you build trust and then the more you trust each other the more you open up and share and help each other how long have you been working with one up so i started it i started one up three and a half years ago uh with an initial investment from PUBG corp in korea Mm -hmm. Um, and used their investment to raise $30 million to make 50 investments in 50 game companies. And we just did our 44th investment this week. And uh, so we've got six more to go and we'll be done with our first fund. And so we're just starting to raise our next fund. That's, that is one that's super cool, a bit over my head. And I, I'll humbly admit that some of it's a little bit beyond me, but I am interested in the idea that if you're talking about building those relationships and you started this three years ago, you were hit with a pandemic that (laughs) isolated people to work from home. How did you navigate that? (laughs) Well, fortunately I have a, I have a great partner in Kelly Wallach and uh, Kelly, Kelly's well known in the indie, indie space, indie game space. She created the indie mega booth, uh, which made it possible for tons of developers to uh, tons of small developers, indie developers to get their games into big shows like PAX. Um, and so um, what she, what she did with Indie mega booth is buy up a big chunk of show floor at a show like PAX and then cut it up into little pieces and then resell it to indie developers so that they could all be in the show. And if you ever have been to a PAX, you know that Indie Megabooth was always like the funnest place to be. I mean, you'd walk by the big AAA games and you see them, they're cool, but 
you're going to really see the innovation over at the Indie Mega Booth. Um, and so we got connected very early when I was just starting the fund and, um, and, um, she agreed to come on board and manage the community because she had been thinking a lot about community and building community among indie developers. And, um, yeah, so the pandemic, uh, it wasn't so bad for us. We could, you know, shift on to, um, Slack where everybody, which we were going to use anyway to connect everybody together and then zoom. And we started doing community meetings on zoom, which we hold, you know, every, you know, kind of two to six weeks. Um, and so everybody's hanging out online, but it's still not the same as getting together. You still really need to get together in person. And yeah, so for two years, we were making investments with people we had never met. <laughs> so in person at GDC this year, we had a big dinner Monday night at GDC and a lot of people were out for that. And for a bunch of them, it was the first time we met in person, which was really exciting <laughs> for all of us. That has to be. What level of depth have they uh, bumped elbows with in the gaming industry? I mean, I, I think it'd be silly to pretend like you haven't met the best of the best and, and the top of the top. Um, do they have your experience or no experience? and Or I'm sure somewhere in between. Or more experience, you know. Really? One of our first investor investments is Raf Koster, um, who uh, is kind of one of the godfathers of the MMO, um, you know, wrote, kind of really wrote the book on game design, a book called A Theory of Fun, which um, I encourage you to look up. Um, Did I just Google uh, him as you spoke? Yes. It's Coster with a K, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. And and Raph, not Ralph. Mm-hmm. Um, R-A-P-H. Raph's, Raph's an amazing guy. Um, no, so there's, we have some very experienced teams, um, you know, uh, um, and, uh, and some people who are just really promising and starting up and everything in between and everybody can hang out together and, and share and help each other. Um, and yeah, that's really what one up is all about. It's not about me. It's, it's about the community creating, creating the interactions between these, these people who are all facing the same thing. You talk about it like it's a hobby, not a job. Do you realize oh, that? Which which part which part of that? Okay. It's a it's it's a hobby that takes, yeah, yeah, a good part of my day. Um that's funny. Um I you know, I don't think it's um, maybe I talk about it like it's something I really enjoy, which mm-hmm. I, I hope it's that. Because cause one of the one of the pleasures of life is to get to a point where you can't tell the dif- difference between work and play and you know, where you really enjoy the things that you do. And that's that is success to me. That's cool. That's cool because in researching your career uh, for this interview, I, I bump into all these tentpole moments, you know, purchasing uh, Bungie, find, discovering Halo, uh, creating a Halo, a 2600 game, 2600 game, uh, <laughs> doing a venture capital a bit, or, or going out and to do one up and then bumping elbows with these guys. And it's, I made a 3D printing company too for World of Warcraft characters. Yes, that was okay. Thank you. Because that was an odd one. I'm like, okay, he's got figure prints. They're these 3D models using Z Corporate. Okay. Uh, what? And you worked as an advisor for Ouya. What a cool, weird, just wild resume. 
Yeah, see, that's the thing. When you you can uh, when you get to a certain point, you can just do whatever you want. Is that is that a financial <laughs> freedom or a career <laughs> success freedom? <laughs> Maybe a little of both. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was you know I started fingerprints just because I thought it was a funny idea, and I and I was really into WoW at the time. I had I had, I had quit my job, and so I had a bunch of free time, and I was playing WoW, which I thought was an amazing game. Um, I had been a big EQ player before that, uh, EverQuest player, and um, and yeah, I, one day I thought, what it would be really cool if I could hold my character in my hand, you know, with all mm-hmm. my custom armor and weapons. So I don't know. Built a company to do it. You happy with it? Did they turn out well? Did you like them? <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun for a while. It was the, the it it was kind of a it was a difficult business, but it was a it was a fun project. Yeah, cool. Uh, in our closing moments, there are one or two more things I want to run by you. Uh, Ainsley Bowden, who runs a, a website called Season Gaming, was I quietly whispered to him that I'd get a, a chance to chat with you, and he was curious. Uh, just how much of an influence Jay Allard was uh, in your working together as he worked a lot in the online space and you were bringing games into the portfolio. I know that's going back a bit uh, in the interview, but I wonder if you could talk about that just a bit. Yeah. Um, What can I say about Jay? Um, Jay and I both came from a, a technical background, me maybe a little more than him, but um, so when we're in meetings with a bunch of kind of sales and marketing people or business people, we were generally the technical guys and we generally teamed up together and agreed on things and, and pushed that and got listened to. Um, and then sometimes when it was just him and me. It was more like we were arguing with each other about technical things, mm-hmm. you know, if that makes sense. So um, we didn't always agree on stuff. Um, you know, he ran system software um, and he ran third party up until launch and then third party got moved from him to me after launch. Um, and when he was focusing on doing Xbox Live, um, you know, he did great work. Uh, one thing about the Xbox project was the timeline was so short. We All of us had to just focus on our area and trust that the other people were going to get their stuff done. You know, like I was trying to get the games done, but if the hardware wasn't ready, it wouldn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Jay was trying to get the, the system software done, you know, Todd Holmdahl was making the hardware. You know, we all just had to had to believe that everyone was going to get it done. And all of us faced really difficult challenges to get it done in the amount of time that we had. Um, you know, I mean, for us, even E3 before launch, we were running on half-speed hardware. We didn't have the final hardware till, you know, maybe maybe less than two months before we had to send the games off to manufacturing. So there was a lot of um, just anticipating what it would be like and hoping that it would actually do what they said it was going to do when it was ready. You know, but Todd Holmdahl's, you know, talk to him. He'll tell you how hard it was to, like, make this super complicated project, you know, a piece of hardware and then get it manufactured and shipped all over the world. 
I mean, so we were all just heads down doing our thing. Um, and it's kind of almost magically, it all kind of came together um, just in time for us to ship November 15th, 2001. So cool. So cool. I guess uh, my last question is, uh, it's a two-parter. So really it's two questions because I'm cheating. Um, when you look back at your time at Xbox and you look at where Xbox is now, uh, certainly the company must be very different in some ways. And uh, I'm curious, you know, how you interpret some of their decisions in, in the last few years and uh, some of the leadership choices there. Like, did you, do you see them going in the right direction? Are there things you would change? I mean, I think I, I answered that kind of earlier when I talked about Phil Spencer and the confidence I have in him. And mm-hmm. I, I love that they're, they're investing more in game studios Part of part of why I left actually was I was getting a lot of pressure to focus uh, on profitability and not on, you know, continuing to grow our first party team and the quality of the games that we were making. And I just thought it was a huge mistake. And then I think they went through years of kind of cost cutting and then ultimately realized, you know, the, that they were losing the battle in, in first party, that Sony had consistently was consistently making better games than them. And now they're starting the process of turning that around. Um, but it's it takes years to turn the ship in the game business, you know. They've made some big acquisitions, some really big ones now. Um, and so I think they're I think they're headed off in the right direction. But um, you know, we won't really find out for for a while. Are there any? Is there any change that you would make to the strategy, or an addition that you would go for? Any any move that that you know Ed Freeze would make if he was there now? The one thing that they're doing that makes me nervous is Game Pass. Oh, um, really? Please elaborate. Yeah, and um, Game Pass scares me because. Um, because there's a somewhat analogous thing called Spotify that was created for the um, for the music business, and when Spotify took off, um, it destroyed the music business. I mean, it it literally cut the annual revenue of the music business in half, um, and it's made it so people just don't buy songs anymore. People don't buy songs on iPhone, for example, because why would you if they're all on your subscription service app? I mean, Apple said they're going to take away buying songs because no one's buying them anymore. We, you know, so we have to be careful we don't create the same system in the game business. I mean, these markets are more fragile than people realize. I guess, you know, I saw the game industry destroy itself in the early 80s. I saw the educational software business destroy itself in the mid-90s. You know, the guy who was on Shark Tank, the the kind of nasty guy, That's he was part of that. They literally destroyed a multi-billion dollar market over in a a matter of a few years. Um, And... So Game Pass makes me nervous. As a customer, I love it. I'm, I love I love Spotify as a customer. Gee, I have all the songs I ever want. I can just play around with them. It's great. Great deal as a customer. But 
that isn't necessarily great for the industry. Interesting. Man, are there any stop gaps you could put into that or ways that you could have have your cake and eat it too? Or do you think it's a uh, walking on glass situation? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. We, we, you know, it's like Spotify got to like a critical mass where you kind of, as a musician, and I'm kind of speaking outside my area now, but you kind of got to the point where you had to put your songs in Spotify because everybody else's were there. And so you didn't really have a choice. Uh, a few, a few brave musicians tried to stand out and do their own digital distribution of their songs and it didn't go so well, but at some point it tipped and everything had to be there. Um, and we'll, you know, the percentage of game of all games that are in game pass is still tiny. Um, and there's a lot of games. I mean, 200 games come out a week on steam a week and more than that come out on, on mobile, you know, on iOS and Android. So, you know, it's, it's the thing I'm worried about for the future, but it is a thing I'm worried about. Interesting. Very cool. Interesting, cool, nerve-wracking, exciting. Because to your point, as a customer, I love it. It it is fantastic. But mm-hmm. in this past week that you and I are at the time of this recording, we've seen both the major exclusives for Microsoft be delayed uh, with Starfield and Redfall. Stalker 2 uh, is likely to be uh, absent for some time as a big that kind of pillar title. And, you know, the Game Pass is being questioned its value, particularly as PlayStation creates their own subscription service and uh, or I should say rebrands and, and remodels its own subscription service to potentially rival it. And it certainly raises questions and it's, it's fascinating to hear that take. Yeah. And, and that's what could happen, right? You can look at just game pass and say by itself, it's not that threatening. It's only so many titles, but then Sony has to match it, you know, and then Nintendo has to match it. And then pretty soon, what effect will that have have on game sales everywhere? Interesting. Well, Ed Freeze, I have taken plenty of your time tonight, more than I had planned, but I appreciate you 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 giving me that time because it was just insightful and fascinating to listen to to your uh, to your different insights and, and the way that you have viewed the gaming industry. Uh, if you would take a moment to either have any parting words to the listeners uh, or take a moment to plug your socials or your next project or your next ventures. Oh, I already plugged one of ventures. That's, that's the main thing I'm doing. Do it right again. Now, so, Do it again. So, no, no, that's okay. I actually I'll get in trouble with our lawyers if I plug it while we're out fundraising. Um, seriously, I will. Um, but um, no, I just, I feel so lucky to have been born when I did, when I was actually, you know, I feel like I was born at just the right time to be involved in the game business when I was young and to see it grow and to participate in it in a lot of different ways. And now I feel like it's finally coming to be what, um, what I hoped it would be, you know, um, one one of the things that I still think that I'm still participating in, I was in Washington, D.C. last week. I go out to uh, meet with the Smithsonian American Art Museum. And that's, you know, the reason I do that is because I think that games will be, 
treat it as a as an art form someday you know and i want i want to start the early work on that um but um so it's just it's just been uh, i just feel really lucky to have been able to uh spend my life on this amazing quest to you know help this new medium to be, to emerge fantastic fantastic uh ed where can find people find you on social media I am not a big social media guy, uh, so I'm probably not going to plug my social media stuff lately. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Ed Freeze, thank you again for your time. Thank you for joining me. Uh, and in truth, uh, forgive the the fan in me for saying, but thank you for helping to make the game industry so incredible. Thanks. It was, uh, it was, it was fun to talk today and I got to talk about some things I don't usually talk about. So it was, thank you for asking interesting questions. Um, hopefully uh, your listeners will, will like this and you'll get to make more.